Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in. As you probably noticed in the title, this is part one of a two-part episode uh, with Rabbi Luxton. We had to break it up because our conversations went to so many places. And as you'll hear, Rabbi Luxton has done so much in his life that a biography was written about him. So there was quite a lot to talk about. Um, in this week's episode, we're going to talk a lot more about the basics of the earlier parts of his life. And in next week's episode, we're going to get more into his incredible activism within Soviet Jewry, uh, as well as how he's helped shape what modern orthodoxy looks like today, and his involvement in the public eye from things like leading tefillah services, leading the prayer services for presidents, and converting Ivanka Trump. Without further ado, here is part one. But that business about uh, don't let school into education is a realization, I think, that sometimes you can learn much more outside of the classroom than you can inside a classroom. This is The Anatomy of a Jewish Leader, a show of meaningful conversations with Jewish leaders that delves not only into their minds, but into their hearts. I'm Jonathan Frieden, and that voice that you heard at the beginning was Rabbi Haskell Luxtein. He's the former principal of Ramaz, is the Rabbi Emeritus of KJ, and has been one of the most influential Jewish activists of the last century, to the point where Newsweek referred to him as the most influential Orthodox rabbi in America and the second most influential rabbi across all denominations. Without further ado, here's our talk. I hope that you really enjoy it. Rabbi Luxstein, thank you so much for taking the time to do the show and do the interview. I really appreciate it. Um, before jumping in, how are you? How have you been faring during COVID? Thank God I'm very well. I have uh, avoided COVID, as has my wife and most of my family. And nobody has gotten really sick in my family. Um, my community was hit somewhat. Uh, but on the whole, we've sort of come through mostly unscathed um a couple of frightening uh, moments and a couple of very tragic moments i i can't complain uh, for somebody who has lived through a year of a pandemic um i'm i'm pretty much okay uh, I've hardly been in shul. I've not just now, now that I'm vaccinated fully, started to go back to shul in the in the mornings uh, during the week and on Shabbat. But for a year, I wasn't in shul, and I never davened so well in my life. That's so interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I'm almost um, conflicted about coming back to shul because in shul I can't daven that way i have to keep up with the congregation basically and uh, i don't have the time that i was able to give it give to it at home and discover things in the tefillot that i never knew were there even though i've been davening 
all my life. So I think I came through, thank God, uh, pretty well. Thank God. It's good to hear that. And it's also amazing to hear that still you're still finding new things in the tefillah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's amazing. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, sorry. So, okay. So let's, I guess, just start from the beginning. Uh, okay. You grew up, you, you went to Ramaz, where your father, Rabbi Joseph Lickstein, was the founder and principal. And then you went to Columbia. Uh, you were clearly involved in leadership from the time you were young. I mean, you're the valedictorian of your high school. You're the president of student government. I also heard, though, that like you originally had planned to go into law. What pushed you to transition into the more Jewish education world and into the rabbinate? And nobody ever asked me if I wanted to go into law. Uh, it's so, People, I guess, felt that I had a mouthpiece and therefore that I should go into law. I mean, I, that would have meant I have to be a litigator. Uh, I had no interest in law at all. Uh, I'll tell you where I think my feeling for the rabbinate and Jewish education came from. Uh, uh, even though I didn't realize it at the time, I went as a camper for two years and then as a counselor and leader to Camp Mossad for many years. Uh, when I was uh, in the senior's bunk at the age of 15, the counselor who was in charge of tefillah, a davening in the morning, uh, was a little bit on the lazy side and didn't want to get up so early every single morning. So he must have realized that he had this schnook in the top bunk. <clears throat> he wasn't my counselor, but he came to me and he said, would you be interested in running the tefillah in the mornings uh, during the week, I'll do it on Shabbat, you know, when the director of the camp was there too. Uh, but if you'd like to do it in the, in the mornings, I would be happy to give you that opportunity. And for some reason that I don't know, I said, sure. I always liked davening. At a very early age, I learned how to daven with the proper nusach. And I had a great teacher for my bar mitzvah, Mr. Adler, to whom I owe all my knowledge and ability as a bald fellow uh, and a Torah reader. Uh, so I loved that kind of stuff. And I became, I, I was leading the tefillah every morning. And for the first time in my life, I was worrying about other people davening and how they were davening, and if there was talking going on, and were the uh, chazanim, you know, the leaders of the tefillah, doing it correctly. And I started to form groups of boys whom I taught how to daven properly with the right nusach and so on. And I didn't realize what was happening to me, but I think that's where my feeling for the rabbinate came into me in an unconscious uh, way. And it, it didn't come out 
until I was finishing my junior year in Columbia. Uh, in those days, you didn't have to major in anything. You could take what they called maturity credits, which meant you take your basic courses in a number of fields, and then you take some advanced courses, but you didn't have necessarily one major. Some did, some didn't. I didn't. And I, I remember in about March of my junior year, I asked my father to sit down with me. We didn't have many real heart-to-heart -heart talks. He was very busy. I was very close to him, but we didn't have that many heart-to-heart -heart talks. And I said, Dad, uh, in another year and a quarter, I'm going to be graduated from Columbia College as an educated bum, <laughs> equipped to do absolutely nothing. What do you think I should do? So he said, well, what do you want to do? And I started to hem and haw, and I said, I think I'd like to be a teacher uh, of children, uh, high school preferably. He said, well, would you want someday to be like a principal? So I said, I guess so. I mean, why not? <laughs> Little did I know that when you teach kids, you're really doing the real work in school. When you're a principal, you're divorced from children and you're an administrator and running a, a business instead of really being actively teaching. So I, but I said, yeah, I guess so. So he said then, and I remember exactly what he said because it was formative for me. He said, in other words, you want to become a Jewish educator? I said, yes. He said, well, then I would advise you when you finish Columbia, the most important thing for you as a Jewish educator is to become an educated Jew. He said, don't go to teacher's college and get a master's, which will make you an educational plumber. You'll know all the methods and principles of education. If you want to be a Jewish educator, you have to know a lot. You have to be educated. The best way to get a Jewish education is to go into yeshiva's rabbinical school, spend the three, four, five years, whatever is necessary there, and uh, uh, learn. And while you're there, you'll get a master's in Bernard Rebel Graduate School, and you'll come out of that process as an educated Jew, and then you can learn how to become a Jewish educator. So I said, okay, and uh, the way I went about it is I, I had never really learned Gemara in intensively. I learned in Ramaz, we had it five times a week. I had a wonderful, wonderful teacher, Rabbi Norman Bronznik uh, of blessed memory, a genius. Who, who was very didactic in his teaching, uh, but I didn't learn Gemara the way you learn it in yeshiva. Uh, 
and I thought I needed to do that. And I discussed it with my father and we decided to ask Rabbi Lamb, who was a kind of rabbinic in our shul, uh, whether he would learn with me in the summertime. And uh, oh, I used to, I, I drove down to Crown Heights, and bought myself a used car. This was 19... 19- uh, 52 in the summer, I bought a 1941 Chrysler for $400. My father was so proud. He did, he never drove. My mother didn't drive. I was the first person in our family to own a car. And I drove to Crown Heights every morning. And I learned with Rabbi Lamb from 9 to 12. The first 12 or 11 blot of Masechet uh, in depth, and I found that I l- loved it and was pretty good at it. That gave me confidence, and I I finished uh, Columbia in January, a half a year early, and I went into yeshiva and I was in the shear of the late dean's Zahar, and I learned privately with Rabbi Yosef Weiss, Allah Hashalom. Uh, and got ready for a regular shear the following year in 1953-54. Uh, um, and then beginning in 1954-55, I got into Rav Soloveitchik's shear. He tested the year before, and he called my father up and he said, he's very bright and talented, uh, but he's missing... Uh, a lot of the information because I went to Columbia. I didn't go for four years to Yeshiva college. So I didn't, he said, let him come into my shir. He'll do very well. So I went into Rav Salvechik's shir and I sat in a horseshoe, fourth or fifth row with my head down, praying he wouldn't call on me. <laughs> I don't want to get into the, First time that he called on me, I was so nervous, and uh, that, and he asked me something that I knew in my sleep I would know that, and I couldn't get out the words. Uh, at that moment, I had a feeling that if he asked me, Lookstein, what's your last name?" I wouldn't have been able to tell him what it was. <laughs> uh, over the four years, I subsequently moved closer and closer to him in the fourth year i was sitting right to his left at the desk wow and i did become very close to him Three years with ralph soloveitchik was enough to make even me into something of a talmud chacham and more important a total jew religious jew thinking jew tolerant open jew uh, it was certainly the most formative period of my life. For sure. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting for me to hear because I think when a lot of people of my generation or the younger generation hear about Rav Salvechik, we immediately think of the intellectual genius. Uh, but it's really it's really interesting and, and nice to hear you also mention how Rav Salvechik also made you a more open and accepting Jew. Which oh, I, God, yes. I yeah. remember when... Uh, I remember when I asked him a Shiloh, I went years later 
uh, I went to check up on uh, his feelings about uh, the use of an elevator on Shabbos when you lived on a high floor, whether it would be permissible, uh, the doorman or the elevator man, to press the button for you to go up to this high floor. Um, and I, I, had, I had come to ask him a few questions. That was question number one. I knew from sheer what his sock was, but I thought this is already 20 years later. Elevators had changed. They weren't being, they weren't being operated by an elevator, the uh, handle and everything. It was all buttons and lights. And I asked him, what, uh, what is his sock? And he said, well, what does your father do? So I said, my father lives on the 11th floor and he walks into the apartment house and the doorman just goes into the elevator and presses the button for him so he can go up. So he said to me, so why do you have to be more religious than your father? Jonathan, I have to tell you, that question was worth the whole discussion that I had with Rav Soloveitchik, certainly worth more than the actual answer to the question. Why do you have to be more religious than your father? He knew that my father was a religious rabbi and wasn't fooling around with halacha. And he's, he said to me, so I said to him, Rebbe, I'm not a chutzpanik. Uh, of course, I'm going up with my father in the elevator. I just want to make sure how you paskin on an elevator on Shabbos. And that's where he repeated and he said, uh, an elevator is only a rabbinic prohibition. And uh, if there's no other way reasonably, and the 11th floor certainly qualifies that way, he said anything above the fifth floor. And if it's for any dvar mitzvah on Shabbos and the prohibition is rabbinic, asking a non-Jew to do it for you is permissible ab initio l'chatzchila. Uh, so the psak was important, but the decisive in my life and, and uh, so formative for me. For sure. Yeah. Wow. Okay. It's so, it's so nice for me to like be able to hear these stories. Um, so you started off working in the rabbinical world. You want world. more stories? Look, <laughs> look in the book, Memories of a Giant. I have a eulogy that I gave uh, for Rav Soloveitchik, which I gave in shul uh, the first Shabbos after the Pesach in which he died. I think it was 1993. Uh and uh, it was printed there. There's a treasure trove in that uh, in that uh, eulogy. It's a heck of a lot better than the biography of me that you read. I can tell you that. <laughs> I'll have to check it out then. Okay. Um, so you started working within the rabbinical world at KJ, uh, which is where your father was the rabbi and where you were brought up. And you started there right. as assistant rabbi. You ended up becoming... Uh, the rabbi, you were working there from 1958 to 2015. What was it like to come into the shul in a leadership position that you grew up in and that your father was the rabbi of? 
you're you're leading to something that's quite extraordinary. Uh, when I was about to receive smicha, I went to the placement bureau with a man by the name of Victor Geller, Allah HaShalom, who was one of my favorite people in the world, a very smart man with a great sense of humor. And I asked him, what does he think, what are my opportunities uh, in the field, in the rabbinate? So he told me there's a position in Detroit that I might be able to be a candidate for. I said, I'm not going to Detroit. I'm 26 years old and I'm not married and there are no Jewish girls in Detroit. I'm not going to Detroit. It's interesting. My son, Rabbi Joshua, looks and is married to a wonderful Detroit girl, ah, Georgia. And anyway, I was sure there were no religious girls in, in Detroit. I wasn't going there. The other possibility was a Sephardic synagogue that was going to open up in Cedarhurst in a place where no Sephardim lived. They were going to drive from Brooklyn and from Long Island to that synagogue on Shabbos. And I said, Vic, I said, first of all, I'm not so sure that I would qualify as a Sephardi rabbi. And although I love rice and would love to be able to eat rice on Pesach, I'm not ready to convert. Uh, but secondly, it's not my business how my congregation comes to shul. But to be a rabbi in a place where nobody lived and everybody had to ride, I don't think I would feel comfortable with that. So we talked a little more and I said, you know, I think the only other possibility is if I went and became my father's assistant. And that's when Victor Geller threw me a curveball. And he said to me, he said, Haskell, I'll tell you what that's like. He said, it's like you're a pitcher on the New York Yankees and it's the seventh game of the World Series and the ninth inning and the bases are loaded and nobody is out and the count on the next batter is three balls and no strikes and you're called in from the bullpen. He said, it's possible for you to complete that without anybody scoring a run. He said, but you can't afford to make one mistake. So I said, okay. 18 years later, the congregation had a small celebration for my 18th uh, anniversary in the rabbinate. And I had to speak at a reception. And I got up and I had a series of thank yous. My first thank you was to my father who modeled the rabbinate for me. And the, a rabbi's role and how to conduct oneself and everything. What I, I basically learned everything in the rabbinate from him. Um, the second thank you was Rav Soloveitchik, who informed my whole out attitude towards Judaism and many, many other things. And then, and then I said, 
The third person you probably don't even know. His name is Victor Geller. <laughs> and I told this story that I just told you. Yeah. Sitting in the uh, congregation that day was a man by the name of Siggy Weil of blessed memory. Siggy Weil was a best friend of Victor Geller, who by that time was living in Israel. The next morning, Siggy calls his friend Victor Geller in Jerusalem and tells him that Haskell Lookstein was feted for his 18th anniversary in the rabbinate, and you'll never guess whom he thanked. Victor Geller said, Hoop. He said, He thanked you, Vic. And he told the following story, and Victor Geller must have fallen out of his chair in Jerusalem, laughing himself sick. He said, Haskell, I tried to warn him not to do this, but he was too stupid to understand what I was saying. He challenged, and I was throwing him a warning, and they both had a big, big laugh out of it. So I guess it was a little bit risky. My father was very helpful to me. He was very in, much in favor of my coming. He had never pushed me to go into the rabbinate, but I'm sure my going into the rabbinate was very pleasing to him. And coming to be his assistant was the best thing as far as he was concerned, even though there were some others in the leadership of the congregation who felt I should go someplace else cut my teeth for five but it worked out um the people had a very very warm feeling for me i had grown up in the shul and my father was a very good mentor we used to fight a little bit my father was very conscious of formalism and decorousness and dignity in the shul and i wanted a little more life and excitement, uh, and so on. And, and we used to all, and often he would finally say after fighting with me, you know what, go ahead and try it, that's all. <laughs> and he gave me an opportunity to do a, a lot of things. Uh, I mean, just watching him and imbibing uh, so much of what he did, how he handled weddings and funerals and all kinds of personal issues with congregants and just the way he carried himself. He was always one of the people. He was, he never stood above everybody. He had a stature that was enormous, but he was friendly with all the congregation and he loved what he was doing. And I got that love from him too. So it was, uh, listen, it's never easy for a son and a father to be in the same business together. But on the whole, uh, my recollection is it was, it was quite good. I will say this. He was a master preacher. He taught homiletics in yeshiva for 40 years. And I was privileged after he died. I was invited by Dr. Belkin, maybe, or Dr. Lamb. I'm not sure who was the president to teach the homiletics course that he taught. And I actually taught it also for 40 years until a couple of years ago, I, I gave it up. Uh, my father was a consummate orator and a brilliant, brilliant preacher. Uh, 
And when I would give a sermon in shul, and we would both, at the end of the services, go into the office, uh, uh, he hack, that's what he called me, hack, uh, that was a very fine sermon. Of course, I would have, <laughs> and then he proceeded <laughs> to tell me how he would have organized the sermon, and I would bristle. I tell you, Jonathan, I would give my eye teeth for five minutes of criticism by my father today. I don't have anybody who gives me constructive criticism. He gave it to me. And I, I, I'm pretty sure I learned from it, even though I bristled a little bit with it. But it was a great relationship. Uh, you know, I never felt put upon or anything like that. I'm sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's something to look back and and to wish now that you could have that. Oh like, my god! A degree of positive critique. I I also. Yeah, there's just there's so much so much there. I know that one of the things that you mentioned is that like the the warning that you were given was like you can't make any mistakes. Um, do you feel like at any point you did make at some point you made a mistake, but it was okay because it's far enough down the line? Or do you think there were any parts of of your time at KJ that you were just like completely misunderstood in any way? No, I, I don't say that I was a hundred percenter. I don't. I certainly don't think that every sermon, magnificent sermon, I had clunkers. One of the nicest things is that Dr. Belkin, I love her, who was a member of the shul, proposed my becoming uh, the assistant rabbi at a board of trustees meeting in 1958, the spring of 58. Dr. Belkin sat in the congregation seat right next to my rabbinic seat. The seat that I sat in wow. was the seat of my great-grandfather, the Ramaz, Rabbi Moshe Zvulin Margolis, who was the rabbi from 1906 to 1936. My father came as his assistant in 1923, and then I came as my father's assistant in 1958. For the rest of uh, Dr. Belkin's life, he sat in that seat. Literally, we were touching distance away. When I, and come down from the pulpit to my seat, Dr. Belkin never failed to immediately stand up, extend his hand, and give me a big yeshikoach. And I knew that sometimes it was a clunker. <laughs> and here is this great scholar and leader and Talmud Chacham and human being always giving me a yeshikoch. I knew he was being very gentle and and very, very uh, human uh, with me. But it was a lesson in, in uh, human relations and humility. That's so nice. 
Wow. Okay. It's also crazy that you sat right next to Rabbi Balkan for, for <laughs> that's right. Time here. That's right. Like, who would have known that? Um, okay. Right. So another thing uh, that you ended up taking over from your father uh, was being the principal at Ramaz uh, from 1966 to 2015. Right. There's a line that you that I've I've seen you reference on numerous occasions, and it goes, "Don't let school interfere with your education." First of all, hilarious line. I, I got a kick out of it the first time I, I read it. Um, I'd love to hear a bit more about what you mean by the line. And also, uh, on a larger scale, what do you think the main role of an educator should be? Right. Well, you know, I started out in Ramaz teaching. First, I, during my years in yeshiva, I taught cantillation, meaning uh, how to read the Torah, trop, bar mitzvah boys, and earlier, sixth, fourth, fifth, and sixth grades, how to read the notes uh, uh, in, in the Chumash. And then when I got smicha, I took over a Talmud shir and a Chumash and Navi class. Uh, so I got, ex and then I became coordinator of Judaic studies. And then when my father uh, wanted to give up he, had, he was doing three things uh, at the age of around 70, and he developed a, a heart condition. And the doctor found out that he was doing three things, running the congregation, and he ran the congregation. He was a CEO, and maybe a CFO, too, <laughs> uh, or COO and CFO. Uh, uh, and he was running Ramaz and really running Ramaz. And he was also the president of Barilan University, 6,000 miles away, which he was running from his office in New York. He was the president of Barilan at the same time? Yes. Wow. That's Absolutely. He had a 20 year run, about 10 or 12 of those years he was president. And eight years he was chancellor, which he defined as a president, he said, is a schnorrer, <laughs> a, a fundraiser. A chancellor is a schnorrer for a president. <laughs> He's raising <laughs> funds. So the president looks good. Uh, but he put Barilan on the map. When he, when he took it over from Dr. Horgan, Olav HaShalom, his close, close friend who created Barilan University, but who died after two and a half years, Barilan had 70 students. When he gave up the presidency, Barilan had 7,000 students. Just a little bit of growth, just a little bit. That's right. So this doctor said to him, you're doing three full-time jobs. You got to give up one of them. So he gave up Ramaz to me and made me the, the principal. Uh, look, I had very good educators working with me. I never felt that they were working under me. They were working with me. Uh, I can't really tell you exactly what the role of a Jewish educator is. I, I, when you're running a school, you have to have a, a very wide vision. The most important thing is how you relate to the people in that school. First and foremost, the teachers and the administrators. 
with whom you have to be closely involved and uh, be supportive. Uh, uh, you've also got to be available to parents and you have to love children and be happy going into classrooms or being involved in whatever they're doing, uh, special events, athletic performances, and you have to also teach. I taught every year that I was principal. Because it's when you teach that you see what's really going on in the classroom. You can't, I think, sit uh, like some kind of uh, high priest uh, and, and make decisions, give down rulings. You have to see what's going on in the field. But that business about uh, don't let school into education is a realization, I think, that Sometimes you can learn much more outside of the classroom than you can inside a classroom. Of course, you have to cover a curriculum and you have to learn subjects. Uh, but I was using that expression when we were running to every rally that was called for Soviet jury. Uh, Malcolm Honeline uh, knew the Greater New York Conference on Soviet Jewry. Any time he wanted a rally for Sharansky or Mendelevich or Slepak or whoever he wanted a rally for, he knew the first place to call was Ramaz. Because we would drop everything and send the high school to 67th Street between Lexington and 3rd, opposite the Soviet mission to the United Nations, which was the best place to protest. At the drop of a hat, we would be there. And uh, there were some teachers, you know, who would say, listen, we're a school. We got to cover a math curriculum. That's when I coined the phrase, don't let school interfere with your education, because I think students got more from an hour at a rally than they could in five hours in school and maybe more than five hours in school. Even if they weren't doing any fucking at that rally, but they knew what they were there for. And they were living an active Jewish life, an involved Jewish life. So that's, that's what that phrase really refers to. And, and look, Ramaz, this Chesed program, of which uh, we're still very, very proud. Every sophomore student uh, has to give uh, chesed, and for some of them, that becomes their career. What they did in their chesed thing, into social work, uh, all kinds of things that they that they did during that uh, that period. Yeah, um, it, I think that that's such an important idea that sometimes like recognizing as, as ed educators what also like the overarching, like the, the larger goal is, which is to have people come, have students come out as, you know, Jews who care about the larger Jewish world and Jewish community. And sometimes that's going to happen outside the classroom. So I don't you know, know what? Yeah. 
one of the saddest things today is we don't have a cause for which to rally. <clears throat> Soviet Jewry was our passion. And we did a lot for the Soviet Jews. I mean, in the end, we and everybody else who was involved brought down the Soviet Union and freed the And it was, it was like it's yes, Mitzrayim. This was a miracle. Whoever thought that a bunch of housewives and school kids and, and people like that could beat the Soviet Union. And we beat them. But in the process, we did much more for ourselves than we did for the Soviet Jews. A whole generation became activist and involved and enthusiastic about the Jewish people, Judaism, and they felt they really represented something. Today, it's a little harder. We don't have causes. I, I can for sure relate to that. I know that when I was reading, we were talking before about how we read through your biography and how I was reading through it and I was reflecting on, you know, like my parents' generation and how oh, all sure. of them were, were so just passionate about like, Israel, about the Jewish people. about and, and like I feel now, at least I see in schools, that's to a degree that's missing. And I, I really hear what you're saying. So during your... During your 2010 uh, Sanford Salander lecture for the UJA Federation of New York, uh, you mentioned your personal shlichut, like your mission in life. And you mentioned that it basically rested on, on three things, uh, Zionism, communal activism, and a centrist orthodoxy that's accepting and open to others. And I, I think that that's like a great way to just frame some of the future questions. Um, so just regarding the first one regarding Zionism, you know, I know that you mentioned a, a lot of, you, you have a lot of really strong beliefs about it. You believe that one should support Israel no matter what and should never publicly denounce them in America. I'm curious to hear for, for you, from your perspective, what does Israel mean to you on a personal level? Well, I think uh, Torah scholarship, uh, Torah values, many Piskei Torah uh, come from Israel. I, I can say to you that uh, beginning in, well, beginning in 1990, the Gulf War crisis, more accurately, the Gulf crisis with Saddam Hussein, let him rot in the grave, <laughs> when he was threatening to rain missiles down on Israel, a wonderful friend of mine and former president of KJ came back from Israel after Sukkot and said, there's no Ben Yehuda is absolutely a ghost street. There's nobody visiting Israel. Everybody got scared. And he said, we got to do something. So in a matter of three weeks, we put together 80 people 
and we went to Israel, took out ads in the Jewish week. I think we took out one in the New York Times in which we said, we will not allow Yasser Arafat to be our travel agent. We're going, and we called it Operation Le'aot, to see and be seen. And we spent uh, Thanksgiving week nights uh, traveling the land, the Golan Heights, the Galil, Yerushalayim, Sandy Eisenstadt. Got, it was so empty in the King David, he got me the presidential suite. Wow. Where Clinton <laughs> stayed. Somebody asked me, what was the suite like? I said, I, I don't really know. I didn't really know what it's but uh, there was nobody in the hotel, so somebody could go into the suite. Sandy got that room for Audrey and me. But it wasn't just that. Uh, ten years later, when the Intifada struck on Rosh Hashanah, 2000, the same Sandy that came back after Sukkot and said there's nobody in the street. The, the Intifada broke out quite not accidentally, it was very much planned. And tourism just dropped dead. And Sandy said, we got to do something. And we put together another group and we went on Thanksgiving and then we went, uh, uh, my son Josh was assistant rabbi then. He took a group in January and then we started to do something that I never did in my life. Somebody in the shul, Pamela Rohr, Pesach, I said, Pesach? Who wants to go with me to Israel for Pesach? And she said, but you know what? People go away for Pesach anyway. They might as well go to Israel. Sure enough, we ran a group for Pesach. It, uh, last year would have been the 30th group that we ran, Operation Lahitra Od. We didn't go last year. and We're not going this year. Uh, please God, I hope we're going to go next year. Uh, it, it used to be that we filled up a hotel every week. Now, tourism, well, right now, there's nothing. But please God, when the uh, COVID crisis is over, tourism will be huge again in Israel. It's not much of a mitzvah to go, but we're going with 150 to 200 every single Pesach to the David Citadel. And uh, that's what Israel means to me. It's, it's, I'm not living there. I, I can't give a philosophical reason why I'm not living. Uh, I have a granddaughter who, please God, will be going there shortly in Yetz Hashem. I'm very, very proud of it. Uh, I, I have a job. I mean, I had a job to do here. Now I'm Rabbi Emeritus. I don't have any job. <laughs> I'm just uh, whatever. Ooh, Rabbi Steinmetz, uh, he, he jokes. He said, I'm so happy Rabbi Luxstein is Rabbi Emeritus. Now he has time to work for the shul. <laughs> so I am working for the shul. But my place is in America. It was KJ and it was Ramaz. Um so, but a lot of our students 
about 20% of Ramah's alumni live in Israel. And a reasonable number of uh, members of the congregation. You know, it, it's not yeah. like West Hempstead or or, uh, or uh, certain other communities where there's much more. Like Cleveland, where there's a tremendous aliyah. But Ramah students, you find them all over Israel, thank God, uh, uh, alumni. That's so nice. Anyway, that's sort of. Yeah, it's it's also it's also it's it's nice to hear that sometimes like I know you said you don't have a philosophical reason for why you're not there, but also your answer for what you know Zionism and Israel means to you also wasn't a philosophical one. It's more of one of feeling and acting, which is I will say something. We do the tefillah l'chayalei tzahal and the tefillah l'shlom hamedina. Uh, in a very special way in our shul, you can hear a pin drop when the rabbi uh, 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 when the rabbi says those prayers. It's kodesh kodeshim, the whole. Right now, we're not saying them because of COVID. With God God's help, I hope it's going to come back and it's going to come back. Not the way it's said in a lot of shuls. Avinu Shema Shamayim, Tzuri Yisrael, V'go Alo, Borechet, Medinas Yisrael, Reishis, Smichas, Gula, Seinu. Tzuri Yisrael, V'go Alo, Borechet, Medinat Yisrael, Reishit, Smichat, Seinu. It's said with gravitas. It's very serious. It's as serious as Kedusha is. And the Tefillah L'chayalei Tzahal, of course, and mentioning always the missing in action. This is what a shul in America has. To do. And it has to do it right because we don't have a newspaper that's full of all this information. And we have 6,000 miles away. You want to feel Israel? You got to feel it in shul. Tremendously important to me. Yeah. Not lip service, but central, central to our davening. Thank you so much for listening. At this point, we are going to end part one of the Rabbi Luxtein interview, and we're going to continue next week with a discussion of the incredible activism that Rabbi Luxtein has had, his influence on modern orthodoxy, and his like crazy interactions with the public world, such as with... Uh, the Obamas and the Trumps. To stay up to date, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Anatomy of a Jewish Leader. And if you're really feeling generous, leave us a review on iTunes. It's incredibly helpful. Uh, if you have inquiries or if you'd be interested in sponsoring a podcast, you can reach out at aoajlpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time.